Come on. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step by step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. Joe DeBello is a workplace retirement planning consultant with Chepnik Financial and the 2019 Plan Sponsor Magazine Retirement Team of the Year. And now finally, a guest on Money Savage Maximize. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, George. Thanks a lot for having me today. I appreciate it. Yes, this is George Grumbacher. It is time to go. Joe, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work and why you do what you do. Yeah, sure thing, George. I, I guess we'll start on the personal side. As you and I got a chance to catch up beforehand here, um, I am a former, I like to call washed up uh, minor league professional <laughs> hockey player that landed uh, by pure luck in the retirement plan consulting space where I'm at now. And uh, I, I reside in Orlando, Florida, which probably for most of your listeners might be an odd place for a former hockey player to live. Um, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I work for Chepnik Financial. I ended up falling into this industry um, through an internship in college and I fell in love with it and I've been there ever since and have now been working in this industry for about 10 plus years. And, you know, I think it, to your question in terms of how I got into this this industry, uh, I did not grow up in a family that, that talks stocks, bonds, and personal finances over the dinner table. Uh, my father was a carpenter. Mother was a claims adjuster at an insurance company. So as I got into the real world, as I like to call it, um, through high school and college, I started to learn that uh, there were others out there that maybe had a little bit better understanding of how markets worked and capital markets and you know, took it upon myself to start really learning. And I think what drew me to this this business is, uh, you know, I think in general, not to paint a broad brush, but we've got a lot of really intelligent folks in the financial services industry but we're really bad at explaining complex topics and very simple and easy to understand uh, sound bites for, for those that need it most. So what, what drew me to this is that it, it, a lot of our industry is around problem solving for, for individuals and for companies, but very few folks knew how to translate very complex jargon into easily understandable terms and, and, and obviously conversations to help make a positive change. So been in this industry, um, since around 2009 and, and, and really enjoy it. Nice. Certainly appreciate that. And, and yes, it is a, it is a challenge for financial people to be able to express their, their expertise and their knowledge in a way that, that normal people can actually pick up on it. And a lot of the time in a way that I can pick up on it, Joe. So, <laughs> so I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, what, so, so as a, as a retirement plan consultant, um, there's a lot of facets and correct me when 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 I misspeak. A lot of facets to 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 what it is that you're doing. You're obviously helping the organization itself make decisions about. Just it, let's let's break it down that way. Like how yeah. how does you, you work with the actual company, and then how that translates over to the employees? Yeah, sure, George. And that's a perfect way of putting it. Um, you know, at our firm, Chepnik Financial, um, we are a one digital company, and, and and collectively as a group across the country, we work with 
approximately about 3,000 different corporate retirement plans. That includes 401ks, 403bs, um, defined benefit pension plans. It, it totals around $45 billion in, in retirement plan assets and north of 600,000 individual participants. So the way you explained, I mean, your role, my, my role and the way you laid it out is actually the perfect way of explaining. It's really twofold. One is that we're providing fiduciary guidance to organizations and, and their plan sponsors. But second, and just most importantly, is, is providing that advice and education to those same organizations' workforce on an individual level. So really, I, I, you know, from a company perspective, we're helping them develop processes and helping them act in their you know, employees' best interests and, and create you know, review processes, not only for the investments, but also for the plan design itself and ensuring that the plan is working. And then the other half of our of our organization on the participant education space is really working one-on-one and in group settings with individuals to make sure that they have all the knowledge that they need to make wise financial choices. And, and, and that is a bit of an art and a science, as we've already talked about, is that, that those type of conversations really have to be impactful and tailored to the audience. So we're really serving two roles for the organization we work with, both that corporate consultant, but also working with their people um, that are that are doing the everyday jobs at the various organizations we work with. I have to think that that, that one of the the biggest challenges and opportunities when you are trying to create effective messaging for 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 people is how do we take just what is a massive subject matter. Find, uh, of investing and saving and, and, and everything and, and, and pick and choose what and how then to communicate. That's a great point, George. And I, and I, will say, I think it's easier than a lot of folks make it. You know, I, I think if I lay the framework for, for how we enter into engagements with our, with our prospective clients and our partners is, you know, obviously everything that we do is based on what I like to call these five little initials, E-R-I-S-A, ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. When that was passed, it really laid the groundwork for for companies and those involved with the company's retirement plans. It it set basic standards for how they were to monitor and, and how they were to act in a fiduciary manner for their participants. So plan sponsors, you know, have a lot on their plate, both in managing the liabilities that are associated with their plans and then secondly, making sure that the plan's effective and that it, it speaks to their employees. And, you know, I think as we as we engage with plan sponsors, what, what, what I've found, you know, over the last decade or so is that, A, many plans don't really have a defined goal or even success metrics. You know, they may meet quarterly or semi-annually to review investments and they, they kind of go through that cadence. But at the end of the day, they don't have a measure to find or, or to really determine whether or not those conversations and the strategies that they're employing, you know, are, are those really helping their employees get over the hump? Are they helping them get closer to a dignified retirement? So, you know, before we get into kind of the, the participant messaging, I think it's really important for a lot of plan sponsors to truly understand, hey, is our plan working? And and we call it the five F's at our firm. We, you know, we obviously, we focus on the what most of our industry does, which is the three F's, the fees, the funds and the fiduciary governance aspect, but the the two final Fs that we focus most on are efficacy, which isn't really an F word, but <laughs> what it means is, you know, is your plan working, right? It, it's a retirement plan after all. Is it helping your participants retire on time? And then the last one is fun. You know, how do we take this really dry subject matter for the 95% of those in these plans? Um, how do we make that dry subject matter and make it 
matter to them and, and make it speak to them in terms that they understand and make it impactful for them. So we always, you know, we try to lay that groundwork for plan sponsors and we've got a great graphic too, which I, I think speaks to some of these concepts and our investment team put this together, but we, you know, we're very visual and we figure participants are as well. So, you know, as we're talking to plan sponsors, helping them understand this framework for decision-making and, and, and where they have the ability to make the biggest impact on their participants is really an, an important concept to understand. So we make it really simple. We draw it out using bubbles, right? And the larger the bubble, the bigger the impact it has on the probability of retirement plan success for their participants. And I think most of our industry is hyper-focused on investment performance. And, and rightly so. It's an important aspect of you know any fiduciary conversation. Um, you have to make sure that you have top performing funds and that you have a process for monitoring those. But if we really peel back the layers of the onion and look at the grand scheme of things and truly understand what what factors really impact a financially fit workforce and what what really is going to lend to success for your individual employees, oftentimes it's not really the investments. The number one thing that the participants control, which is their savings rates, right? So in our graphic, that is the biggest bubble we have on the page. The number one thing an employee can do to ensure you know, the probability of success in retirement is to save more money, right? That, that's easy. That's easy to do. That's an easily controllable environment, an easily controllable factor for most participants. But we spend probably the least amount of time on it. Right. Some of the other factors that we look at, too, um, are working longer, spending less. You know, not not really the, the things that you'd commonly associate with um, fiduciary committee meetings and retirement plan reviews. But But in reality, those are the things that have the biggest impact. And then if we go down the line there and we start to look at some of the more minimal impact factors, certainly investment um, allo asset allocation plays a role. But the individual investment selection, one fund over the other um, for a few basis points of performance really has very little impact on whether or not your employees are going to retire on time. So, you know, if we if we pivot and we start having a little bit deeper of a conversation beyond you know, our normal fiduciary governance cadence of reviewing the investments and, and providing performance reporting, we really have to dive in and take a look at understanding that participant's mind. And fortunately, um, over the last you know decade or so, we've had some really great information come out on, on behavioral finance and, and automatic features from a, a few um, well-known professors in this space, Richard Thaler and Shlomo Bernardzi. So there, there have been some concepts that have been rolled out that have been very successful um, and helping encourage employees and nudge them in the right direction that we, we can certainly talk a little bit more about. Yeah, I think that everything you said really makes a lot of sense. And and, and it is just oft, all too often overlooked. Oftentimes the simplest answer is, is the correct one. It's like, well, what's my rate of return? Well, that's an important question, but not nearly as important as what your savings rate is and are you able to spend less and potentially work a little bit longer than maybe expected and if you can really get your arms around those things right there, I think you're probably positioning yourself for success. So appreciate that. What And I am interested very much in what some of those, I guess, automatic or, or, or plan features that, that, that can also help push people in the right direction are. Yeah, well, a lot of it ties to behavioral finance, right, and understanding how we create the framework for participants to make the right choice the easy one. So. You know, when the Pension Protection Act was passed a handful of years ago, it really paved the way for things like automatic enrollment. 
an automatic escalation. And we've had a period of time to study the impact and really what automatic enrollment and automatic escalation features um, were designed to do were to help get folks into retirement plans. You know, we've all probably seen the data out there that by and large, um, employees in the United States generally just aren't saving enough to provide for a for a dignified retirement. So how do we help? How do we even how do we take that first step of even getting an employee into the plan who a doesn't know what a mutual fund is, doesn't care to know and really has had zero experience in investing? How do we get that person engaged and in the plan? Well, the automatic features have have essentially solved that problem. We know that if we change the mechanism for how an employee joins a plan, from an opt-in process, which was really the predominant way employees joined plans for many years and even still do today, which is proactively going out and making a choice to, to join a plan, we've made that process easier by implementing things like automatic enrollment, where if an employee takes no action, they're gonna be in, they're gonna be enrolled in the plan at a rate that's set by the plan sponsor. And if they're fortunate, that same mechanism will allow them to automatically increase their savings rate, you know, by one or two percent at some point during the following year. So by providing those automatic features, we've created an environment where just based on behavioral finance uh, principles, the majority of participants do not opt out from those features. So those have been a, a really big help to plan sponsors that are looking to boost participation in their plan, looking to get their workforce to a little bit more um, healthy place from a retirement savings standpoint. But that was really just scratching the surface. And I think as we've seen the success um, of automatic enrollment, you know, we typically see plans that, you know, maybe we're in the 10 to 20 percentage uh, participation rate range add an automatic enrollment provision and immediately jump from 80 to 90% participation rate and stick. So we know that that's working. So, you know, how do we build on that and how do we continue that conversation? And, you know, these are the types of conversations we're having with plan sponsors and, and plan fiduciary committees to help create an environment to continue to nudge and encourage workers to create financially healthy habits. And, and that's what the conversation we're talking about today is, is continuing to push the envelope on some of those default rates. So primarily when automatic enrollment was implemented, 3% of an employee's pay kind of became that um, popular default rate. And it's kind of one of my funny um, trivia 401k nerd questions that I pull out every now and then is, 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 is to why that is and why, why was 3% picked as this magic number and why even still today does that seem to be the number one default rate that employers use? Well, it, it really actually boils down to a model notice that the IRS issued <laughs> when automatic enrollment was issued, was, was created. And in that model notice, they used 3% as a placeholder. So I think most plan sponsors and employers looked at that and took that as, well, 3% is in the IRS notice. So that must mean that's right. So, you know, unfortunately, I think we've done our participants a little bit of a disservice with that yeah. in that I think for most of us in the financial services world, we know that likely a 3% savings rate is probably not going to be enough to get any participants over the hump from a, from a retirement savings standpoint. So much of the conversation now, much of the studies that we're seeing come out of the universities are, you know, how far can we push that default rate without, you know, essentially making our participants run screaming for the exits and, the data that we're seeing is that the, those default rates, 
you know, up until you get around the 8% range, they're, they're not really seeing a significant dropout um, from participants that are, that are, you know, opting out of the automatic enrollment. So again, using some of these features, these automatic nudges that the participant does not have to think, does not have to understand complex jargon. They simply take no action and trust that their employer is guiding them down the right path. Those are the kinds of conversations that we're continuing to have, you know, at the company level. Nice. I appreciate all that. That's interesting that, you know, 3%, why three? Well, that's just because the way it's, 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 it's the way that we've always sort of done it. But now it's proving out that you can get that almost up to 8% without people freaking out too badly. I think that's really interesting right there. And and even then, I mean, if we're talking that, that people need to be saving 15, 16, 17%, I mean, that's, that's a good start, but you can't go from zero to 60. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, as, as you're talking, what, what jumped into my mind is there's certainly employers out there that, that probably push back on this and say, well, I don't want to be maternal or paternalistic with my employees. I want to, I want them to be able to make their own decisions versus, you know, I need to put them in a position to be successful, right? And maybe they're not going to get it this year, but maybe next year they're actually going to start taking advantage of it. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? I'm really glad you brought that up, George. I, I think there's there's a two-part answer to that. And one is that I think the data shows just in um, what we've seen both on a national level and you know, we're fortunate to get access to data from a lot of the large providers out there that, that service retirement plans. And you know, the, the, the survey results that have come back around automatic enrollment have been significantly positive. I, I, again, I think participants are looking for guidance. I circle back to that initial point we made around most participants in these plans don't want to know about the markets, don't care to know, and, and quite frankly, don't have the time to dig in and become experts. So they want someone to nudge them in the right direction. But I, I think if we expand on this conversation, especially given the, the current world events of, of what we've seen over the last few months with, with the pandemic, th- there's really a couple things that I think the positive outcomes that plan sponsors should consider you know, when they're, when they're thinking about adopting automatic features and, you know, not that we anticipate something like the COVID-19 outbreak happening or nor would we have the foresight, you know, plans that we've seen that have, that have offered automatic enrollment in some cases, you know, have created a necessary cushion for some employees that may or may not have had savings in the past had they not been automatically enrolled in the plan. Now, we know tapping into the retirement plan should be your last result, but for many Americans, that that was where they needed to go during this time period, especially in time uh, in, in industries where they've been particularly heavy hit. So, you know, I, I think the data supports that most participants are in favor of making this process easy, because if you think of the old methodology of, of enrolling in a plan, especially for a participant who maybe just didn't really have any exposure to these these terms of the markets or investing in general, you know, the amount of decisions that they had to make to even get in their plan was so intimidating that it was no surprise that participation rates in some plans and industries were in the 10 to 15 percent. You know, they decide, hey, am I going to get in the plan? If I get in, am I going to contribute pre-tax or, or what's this Roth bucket mean? And then if I'm lucky enough to get past that screen, then I've got to pick an investment. You know, what's a small cap index fund? You know, there's so many decisions that they have to make that, that quite frankly, many of them, A, don't want to be qualified to do and, and B, lack the, the guidance to be able to be helped through those conversations that this process has really increased action and has led to much healthier workforces. 
And I think what we'll see here in the near term, I know there's some some legislation out there, and I think it's going to be significantly impacted or amplified by what's gone on over the last few months here, is this idea of auto-enrolling employees, maybe not first into a, a, a pre-tax or a Roth account, but into an emergency savings account where, mm-hmm. hey, if I'm a new employee and I join your workforce, maybe the first $1,000 or first $1,500 that I save doesn't go into the 401k plan, but it sits in an after-tax emergency savings bucket that I could tap into if I run into an issue like we've seen over the last couple months. So that's kind of where I speak to. I think we've only seen the beginning of automatic enrollment features, and I think we'll continue to see adoption. And we're seeing less and less pushback because of the data that's out there on all different industries. One of our most successful automatic enrollment um, implementations um, was in the pest control industry, you know, where you have drivers out on trucks spraying yards, you know, for eight hours a day that aren't in front of an HR team. So I, I think as participants become more and more receptive to this, employers are are seeing the data and are becoming less and less concerned about uh, automatically enrolling their employees. Nice. I love it. Well, Joe, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? So I, twofold. One, I think for plan sponsors, um, Really look beyond just the fees, the funds, and the fiduciary governance aspect. But while they're incredibly hyper important to maintaining your your qualified plan, try to evolve your conversation beyond just picking investments. And and what kind of what kind of plan design, what kind of um, framing, what kind of messaging can you use to continue to create a, a, a positive environment for your participants to make you know that right choice the easy one? And if you haven't done so already. Go out, seek out a specialist fiduciary advisor, someone that specializes in qualified retirement plans. Bring that person into the fold. I think you'll really appreciate the the outside input that they can give you and, and truly make a difference in your retirement plan. And I think from a participant standpoint, George, there's a ton of noise. And, and, and obviously, if you flip on the news about the markets moving and all the craziness, my tip to the participants in plans would be to keep your head down, You know, continue to increase your savings over time. And in cases where they're available, use the resources that you have available. Many plans out there have the services of a fiduciary advisor and their education team like a Chepnik Financial. Reach out to those folks, schedule that one-on-one, and and do that checkup because you might be surprised what you might find. And again, I think just continue to stay the course, keep your head down, block out the noise, and continue to try to save as much money as you can, have as little debt as possible. And I think those are the two keys for for a truly successful outcome for your retirement journey. Well, I think that is great stuff. That definitely gets Come on. Come on. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Yeah, George, uh, two places. One, you can visit our uh, webpage at www.onedigital. That's O-N-E, digital.com. Or you can reach out to me personally at my LinkedIn, which is www.linkedin.com forward slash L-I forward slash Joe DeBello. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Joe your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to onedigital.com and also find Joe on LinkedIn. I'll list both those in the notes of the show. Thank you again, Joe. Thanks so much, George. Appreciate you having me. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. <laughs>